Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear. I'm the host, Beth Schenker, and I'm glad you are able to join me for this special one-year anniversary celebration of my podcast on Jewish food. I thought it might be fun to pick out some excerpts from the last year of episodes for a best of The Big Schmear. I hope you'll have as much fun listening as I did selecting the excerpts. I had to start with my very first episode. My guest is my good friend, Chef Laura Frankel, talking about the history and importance of gefilte fish and cholent from a diaspora perspective. Maybe just give us an example of how things change. Gefilte fish has actually a halachic or Jewish law reason for existing. And that is that you eat gefilte fish on the Sabbath or on holidays when you're not allowed to do any work. So typically eating a piece of fish, if it's, you know, kind of a bony little matter, you're picking out bones and stuff and you're working. On the Sabbath, you're not allowed to work, so you're supposed to enjoy your food. It's just supposed to be this like bite after bite of pleasure. And so gefilte fish was created as a dish that has no bones in it, so you're not working. So it actually has a halachic reason for existing, and what it means is stuffed fish. So they used to take the fish, the the flesh and all the yummy bits, out of the skin, clean it up, flavor it with, if you're Polish, you would add a little bit of sugar to it and salt and matzo meal, ground up carrots and onions, all that yummy good Mm -hmm. stuff, and stuff it back into the skin, and then it gets poached, and it's this wonderful matter. And that was probably when it was really good. Now we see it kind of (laughs) floating around in these jars with all this, like, gelatin-y whatever is in there, this (laughs) stuff. The bigger the jar, the more scary it is. Yeah. (laughs) And and we've done away with that. Homemade gefilte fish is, is amazing and delicious. That being said, so there's varieties of it. And people will get like crazy about it. Like, well, are you Polish? Then it has more sugar in it. And the fish is almost sweet. It's like sweet, Mm. funky, whatever. It's not bad. It's delicious, but it's different. And then there's various versions of it around the world, including... In Spain, where it's got pickled flavor to it, so there's there's um, vinegar and cloves, hard spices, cloves, cinnamon, that kind of thing, and it's almost like an escoviche. And everywhere around the world, everyone's got their version of all of these dishes. But what always is amazing to me, going back to your first question about Jewish food, is that somehow everyone simultaneously came up with the same answer to the same problem: How do we eat? On the Sabbath, one of everything, kind of, which is what you're supposed to do, like fish, land, and everything. It's like the surf and turf of of Jewish food. (laughs) But how do we eat all of that and still follow the laws? So it's almost like a paradox. So how are we going to have fish? How are we going to have meat? How are we going to enjoy this Sabbath fully and not violate any laws? And everyone came up with the same ideas, like cholent, for example. Cholent is like this crazy dish and for anyone who's not had cholent listening it's this dish that just tastes unto itself it's got all this stuff in it typically meat and barley and different grains and onions and stuff in it and it cooks for like 27 hours (laughs) and at the end of the time when you eat it you're just like you can't taste the onion you can't taste the meat you can't taste anything but it all tastes like itself and and in some ways it's kind of comforting because you always know what you're getting and it, and it's and it's like kind of a pair of slippers. You put them on. It's like cozy. It's like ah, and that's like the the Ashkenaz version. But similarly, everyone came up with the same version around the world. So there's like a version of cholent that's North African. There's a version of cholent that's Sephardic for the Sephardic Jews. There's one for everywhere, and everyone came up simultaneously with this 
dish that cooks all throughout the Sabbath, and then you pick it up on your way home from your synagogue or whatever, and you go home and you feast on it. But I just find it fascinating and endlessly delicious and entertaining to to realize that every group of Jews all over the world came up with an answer to the problem. This is before newspapers and the internet, so we're all eating fish without bones and dishes that cooked long and were savory and amazing. When Laura was working on a magazine, she was doing a huge amount of recipe testing. How different is it being a chef and sending out ordered food to the table versus sharing recipes via a publication? Now what I do is I write recipes all day long, basically, and then I test them. So I'll write, some days are are writing days and some days are testing days. And the testing comes with, I literally go into a kitchen and then read a recipe as if I were anyone else, even if I wrote the recipe. And then I test it to make sure it's going to work in every variety of kitchens and every setting and then go back, tweak it, put it back and send it off to our editors and to the next chain of people that get to look at it. It's a lot of fun and it's interesting because I get to fully impact everyone's what they're having for dinner, literally every single day, which is cool. You're in my kitchen. I'm in your kitchen. Sort I'm of. in everyone's kitchen now. I'm in your I'm in your pantry. I'm in your Whoa. refrigerator. <laughs> I really wish you were in my kitchen. I know my food would be better. Uh, <laughs> on point, trending. Yes, we are talking about food and recipes. Who knew that food trends and Google would be your friend? What's interesting and something that I did not know is that we have someone called a digital content person. And what this person does is tracks what's trending right now. So it literally might be something like butternut squash. It's like, ah, oh, butternut squash is trending. And how they determine this is they read, they figure out how many people have Googled butternut squash recipes. And if butternut squash or spaghetti squash was trending a few months ago, um, right at the beginning of fall, I mean, you could almost sense it. Like, you know, literally everyone, the wind changed and everyone wanted spaghetti squash. And so we immediately like, you know, it's almost like the hotline, my phone like starts jangling or something imagine like lights and sirens going off we need squash recipes now (laughs) it's so funny because and I didn't realize that's how that happened but somebody is literally tracking all this stuff to see what everyone is googling um and so immediately I'm coming up with caramelized squash this and velvety squash that and it's it's actually cool And it's like, it's not just like when I say I'm impacting dinner and stuff, but I kind of really am. Because if you're somebody who follows these dietary regulations, or if you're just someone who loves squash, (laughs) and I happen to hit the right note by saying it's caramelized onion and squash this or whatever, the right key phrases are that turn people on and get their taste buds going and their uh, pupils dilating. So if I write that well and it's appealing and, and not too crazy over the top complicated, then people are actually really running out and making it and enjoying themselves on it, which is just so cool to me. And it's surprising because I didn't know that that was the process for it. So to me, that's interesting and maybe other people will think it is. But when, you know, the term that everyone's using these days when something's on point it really is on point. It's like literally at the minute. So, you know, scary squash, on point. yeah, or <laughs> turmeric. And, you know, in January, it's going to be diets. Yeah, I mean, we can already predict that one. But, what, right. but whatever the flavor of the year is or last, you know, whatever this year's pomegranate or kale is, that's what we're going to be writing about. Laura is always searching for that perfect bite. 
as I write, I have this like thing with my brain and my mouth. They're really connected, not just in talking, <laughs> but flavors. So like I can think of a flavor and I can actually taste it. And sometimes I can oh. smell it at will. I know it's crazy. And oh. I think that's, I was, and I'm, as a kid, I used to say that to mom, like, I'd be like, oh, mm, 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 I'm tasting this, you know, that kind of thing. Uh -huh. But anyway, so, so I get, to, so I've got all these things going on in my mind all day long and these flavors kind of popping like drawers opening, like a flavor pops out, you open a drawer. It's crazy. And then I get to the grocery store and I'm like, so like weary from all the sensory <laughs> stimulation. I get to the store, I'm like, I don't even know what we're having for dinner tonight. We're going to have a salad, I think. <laughs> it's crazy, but it's a lot of fun and I love it. And I stay fresh by trying to always look I'm a very seasonal person it's kind of like how I get dressed I look outside check the weather whatever and food is the same for me and being in the midwest I have like this idea of the way fall should taste and it's always like you know with sage and thyme and mushrooms and lots of, of velvety squash <laughs> <laughs> of course of course <laughs> versus you know if I lived in Florida it would be different or California and I think that those flavors always inspire me and, and keep me happy and always in search of that perfect bite where I really always am kind of looking for the next flavor. What's the next thing that's going to set it off? And another early guest to my podcast was Ina Pinkney. She's an amazing person, restaurateur, entrepreneur, food writer, and much more. She was clearly ahead of her time. And I was walking along the street and I stepped on a piece of the Reader newspaper. And it was an ad for a balloon delivery service. And I thought, boy, isn't this interesting? People send you strippers, they send you singing <laughs> telegrams, and they send you balloons for your birthday, but nobody sends you a cake. And I went up to the roof deck of the building I was living in, and I started to talk to my neighbors, and I said, what would you think of a service where a tuxedoed butler would bring a cake to you? And instead of writing on the cake, there'd be a sparkler and then maybe a parchment scroll in calligraphy that said, Happy Birthday, Beth. We think you're the best friend we ever had. And everybody went, Oh, my God, that is really good. So I went down to my apartment, and I started to write down all the things I thought I needed to do to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And I was reading the New York Times Magazine section, and Craig Claiborne had a recipe in there for a chocolate cake with no flour in it. Oh the my. first flourless chocolate cake. And I thought, oh, my God, this would be the cake for my surprise birthday cake delivery service. Because at that time in Chicago in the 80s, a lot of Austrian, Hungarian, buttercream, kirschwasser, mm -hmm. not my kind of cake. And I thought, oh, my, I'll just make this cake, and it'll be what I serve. Well, I had never baked. I never separated an egg. I never <laughs> beat an egg white. I never melted chocolate. So, of course, I made this cake, and it didn't come out at all. So I went out, and I bought enough ingredients for three more cakes, thinking if I can't solve this, uh -huh. then I'll find another cake. By the third cake, the fourth one, actually, I was able to do it, and I realized at that moment, if you can read, you can bake. <laughs> so I was playing with this cake, and the phone rang, and it was a neighbor. Hi, Ina, I saw you upstairs on the roof, and I heard what you said. You don't know me, but I got your number from the doorman, and I'd like to order your service for Friday. Oh, my God. This was Sunday night. I was starting what turned out to be the last of my 21 jobs the next morning, and I said, sure, because that's what entrepreneurs do. They say yes, and then they figure it out. Huh. <laughs> so Thursday night, I did the cake 
the fabulous husband put on a tuxedo, did the calligraphy on the note, and he went downtown on LaSalle Street and delivered it to a law firm. And that night, I came home from work. How was it? He said it was fine. The phone rang, and it was Diane. I said, Diane, you know you were the first. Tell me everything good, everything bad. She said it was wonderful, it was exciting, it was interesting, it was fun. We ate this fabulous cake, and there was nothing left, but the guy still had the scroll to take home to his wife, and it was amazing. And I said, what was bad? She said, oh, you don't charge enough. Right about now, I'm thinking I want to sit down with Ina over tea and chocolate cake. But alas, that's not going to happen, at least not right now. So moving along with my best of show, I knew I had to include something from my sessions with Joan Nathan. Here she's sharing her definition of Jewish food. Jewish food is really three, has three components. The first is that unlike French cuisine or Italian cuisine that's embedded in the land where people live, Jewish food is all over. But what it's really embedded in is that even if you don't believe in them particularly are the Jewish dietary laws. And to me, that's one of the key elements of Jewish food. The second is the idea of the merchants, of wandering, of going after precious jewels, precious stones, spices. And in wandering, you come up, you're always looking for the new, and it's become part and parcel of Jews that are in the business. They were bakers, they were vintners, they were grain merchants throughout history. Because food is so important to them, the, the laws of food, they've been in the business of food. That's the second. The third component is that Jews have been kicked out of countries so often that they've had to find new places that conform to the dietary laws, but new foods. So for example, I went to El Salvador and I had dinner at someone's home and instead of making potato pancakes, they made yucca pancakes with cilantro cream. Mm. So Jews have always known, learned how to adapt food. And so much for thinking chickpea flour is the new protein. There are all these ingredients that we're reinventing, like, um, uh, what do you call it? Like uh, pomegranate paste and date jam and tamarind paste. All these things that people suddenly think are new are very old. Chickpea flour. Mm -hmm which is from the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's a long time ago. I was in a store just like two weeks ago and, ha and had somebody ask about, do you have chickpea flour? Right. And I thought, oh well, my it's God. for gluten-free yeah. diets. But that was something that was used seven, in 1700 B.C., way before, maybe 2,000 years before that. And then I saw that chickpeas were used. And I realized that First of all, chickpeas is one of the oldest foods known to mankind, and it's also food that was used in an arid place. Therefore, it's going to be the food of the future because, you know, we Absolutely. really need foods like that. So, and then I realized that one, another ingredient was sesame seeds, which meant that sesame had already come from China to the Middle East. And therefore... Um, 
sesame oil is the first seed oil. So they were making sesame oil, which meant, my guess is, and I'll bet you I'm right, that they had hummus because it was the food of the poor. It was protein. And, um, and I know in the Bible it talks about um, that people dipped bread, sort of like pizza bread, into, it said, vinegar. These were farmhands. And I asked the Israeli writer about this. He said, uh, Mayer Shalev, and he said, it must have been hummus because hummus, the word for chickpea and the word for vinegar in biblical Hebrew was very similar. And he said, if you gave a, hand, a, a farmhand um, vinegar to dip your bread in and you wanted them to go back to the field, they wouldn't come because there's no protein. And chickpea was the protein of the ancient world. Who better to ask about Israeli cuisine than Joan? In America, Jewish food, three quarters of American Jews are from Eastern Europe. So we think of, of Jewish food here, mostly Eastern European. The home food, a lot of it, or the traditional food, the holiday food in Israel is a lot of it is Eastern European or Sephardic or wherever they come from. But the daily food is is of the region. It's not Ashkenazic or Sephardic food. It's, it's what they eat right there. It gets kind of complicated. Well, yeah, it certainly <laughs> does. So much about our food is about memory. Joan shares a story from her newest cookbook, King Solomon's Table. Well, one story, Mimi Sheraton talked about a recipe called Schritzlach, and they were blueberry buns, but she wrote this book on a thousand things to eat before you die, and Schritzlach was one of them. And I looked up Schritzlach, and I learned that it was an oblong bun with lots of blueberries in it, and it was the iconic Jewish dish of Toronto, Canada. So I went, and I called this guy that I know who works at the James Beard Foundation, Mitch Davis, and I said, "Did you? he's from Toronto, did you grow up with Schritzluck? And he said, yes, and it was horrible. <laughs> so, and he said that it had blueberry pie filling, which was invented in the 50s. So that what happened was this woman named Ann Kaplansky came from southwest Poland in the 20s. Um, she was poor. She became a baker. And one of the seasonal recipes was a blueberry bun because Toronto was an English town. And it was just like what she, her mother had made in Poland. And it was oblong, and you put the blueberries in it, you closed it with your hand. It was sort of like a pocket pastry. And you put a little bit of sugar on top, and you baked it. But once blueberry pie filling was invented, and, there, and the, 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 this uh, I forget the name of the bakery, was sold, they added blueberry pie filling instead of the fresh blueberries that grew near Toronto as they grew in southwest Poland. So people ate this dish, and even though the blueberry pie filling was in, they probably thought it was modern. And people didn't have taste back then anyway. So people <laughs> would eat them, and they still eat them. Uh, in, in Toronto. Whenever you went away for the weekend, you'd always bring blueberry buns, the way we would bring maybe bagels, 
but they they probably brought date bagels too. But this was this was Toronto Jewish. So while I was testing the recipe, literally testing it, this young girl that I know from San Francisco walks into my house, and she looks at what I'm making, and she says, "That looks just like what my grandma made." And Whoa. I'd never, and I've written, I've been studying Jewish food for a long time. I'd never even heard of these blueberry buns. She said, but my grandmother's recipe was better. So we made them according to her re- grandmother's recipe, who also, she came just after the Holocaust, but she had been hidden during the Holocaust. So I looked up where her town was and where the other t- woman's town was, 30 miles away from each other. Oh, my God. And then... Uh, her mother showed me something that was a memoir of someone who went through the Holocaust who was talking about blueberry buns, oblong pastries with sugar on top. And I, a few things I discovered. I realized that this was something that was of the, the region of Southwest Poland. Southwest Poland were a lot of poor Jews and a lot of small shtetl-like towns as soon as the Nazis came in, because these were religious Jews, they wiped them out. So I thought, well, first of all, had these women not left one hidden, the other one left earlier, um, these would have been lost forever. But, you know, I also thought about music and culture Mm -hmm. and all these things, not just because of the Holocaust, but with so many horrible inhumanities from man to man throughout history all the culture that's lost right. and that you know and and so i i felt in a way that it was beshert that i found because it's a really good recipe i attended my first food festival as a podcaster last august in detroit i met so many wonderful and generous people there here are two short snippets from that trip what we really think is important is to connect the Jewish community and bring them back to the city. So we love this event where we can bring together uh, all different types of Jewish organizations. So anywhere, you know, from renewal to orthodox, having them in one space together to come and talk about sustainability, about uh, social justice issues in the city. We think that just that connection is really important and that's really what we strive for to help the community connect to each other. And it's also really important to do stuff in the city as well because we think it's good to get people connected down here. We partner with um, a farm, uh, an urban farm called Oakland Avenue Urban Farm uh, in the North End, and we work with them a lot. Um, we uh, have staff who work there two days a week, and we connect them to Hazon as well. So we like to program. I specifically do a lot of outdoor programs there as well. Um, so we'll do different bike events, bike to farm. So we just did a bike tour um, about two weeks ago where we had about 25 people, so a mix of young adults from the suburbs as well as from the city, and we started and ended at North End Farm um, and we biked about 12 miles around the city and stopped at different urban farms. So there's actually 1,400 urban farms in Detroit, which I think, yeah, it was really surprising to a lot of people. So we biked to uh, about six of those and then we ended at the farm and we did a brunch and had all the food sourced from the farm. So I knew there would be a food thing. So what was the food at the farm like? So the food was great. Um, We worked with a local um, Detroit entrepreneur. So she... 
<laughs> sourced her food partially from the Oakland Avenue farm as well as from different uh, farms throughout the city. And so we think it's really important to connect people to the food movement, which is obviously another big part of the festival today. So we bring a mix of different healthy vegetarian options, um, and we really like to engage people with, you know, eating a little bit healthier, thinking about where your food's being sourced from, and even beyond that, thinking about who's serving your food, you know, are they being treated um, justly? So that's really the main things we like to focus on is um, connecting people and uh, introducing them to more sustainable ways of living um, through food and social justice. And a concept new to me. Forgotten Harvest is based in Oak Park, and we're a food rescue organization. So that means we pick up food from grocery stores, farms, any other place where there's mass quantities of leftover food, and we redistribute that to soup kitchens, food pantries, and other community partners so it doesn't go to waste. And how did you happen? I know it's not a Jewish company per se. So how did you happen to be here, and what was your interest in, in being part of this Jewish m m food festival? So actually, we were started 27 years ago by a woman named Dr. Nancy Fishman, who was facing hunger herself, and she saw that there was this excess food, and she kind of made a promise that when she was back on her feet, she would do something to help the community. And so she started picking up extra food in the back of her Jeep and dropping it off to a food pantry, and it grew. 27 years later, we're rescuing 45 million pounds of food just in Metro Detroit, and that actually was really helped by people in the Jewish community. She was a member at Temple Israel, and some of the first funding for this organization came from anonymous donors at Temple Israel. I've never heard that term, food rescue. That's it's, uh, it makes total sense now that I hear you talk about it. The food that we are picking up, if we weren't to pick it up, it would end up in a landfill. So uh, 70 billion pounds of food is wasted every year in the United States. And so we are actually rescuing that food from being totally wasted, ending up in a landfill and having environmental impacts. And we're getting it to people that need it. And that's, you know, it's mostly fresh, perishable stuff which is the most expensive. Fruits and vegetables are what people are looking for the most when they are food insecure because they're the most expensive things to procure on your own. So we are stopping it from being wasted, getting it to people that need it. On that very upbeat note, I'd like to thank you for listening, and I hope you'll indulge me one more time when I share another episode of Favorite Conversations with my new food friends later this month. The excerpts heard on this program were edited and engineered by the very talented Mary Mazurik, Steve Robinson, and Hudson Fair. Our theme music is performed by Cavatina Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. Please check out thebigschmear.com for recipes shared by some of my guests, and be sure to like us on Facebook. Thank you for listening, and happy eating.